Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In March this year, journalists Pyotr Sauer and Andrew Roth posted a startling dispatch from the Guardian's Moscow bureau. Their story detailed a New Year party attended by Russia's elite, those closest to Vladimir Putin. Under strict anonymity, attendees told the reporters how a speech had changed the mood of the evening, darkening their future. The speaker was one Dmitry Peskov, Putin's mouthpiece in the Kremlin. His words, in reference to Russia's war on Ukraine, which has mobilized its population and led to possibly more than 200,000 Russian casualties so far, were as follows. Things will get much harder. It will take a very, very long time. In the past two episodes, we've heard about Russian failures and incredible Ukrainian resistance but their enemy in the Kremlin will not be going quietly. Few people have a better insight into Putin's thinking than Mark Galliotti. This is the thing. I mean, it's very hard to predict. I think, you know, the, the, this war is unfortunately likely to drag on unless the Ukrainians are able to make some really quite strong gains. And the Putin regime itself, I think, clings on until that point. I don't believe that Putin anymore believes that he can win the necessary level of triumph, shall we say, on the battlefield. So I think his idea is, look, to dig in for the long haul. You know, if one looks at what's going on at home with the militarization of society and the economy, this is not the kind of thing you do for a war you think is going to last for another couple of months. This is the kind of thing you do for a war that you think might well last at least another couple of years. So I think his hope is to try and outlast the West. To a degree, it's all he's got, so I think he has to believe in it. The point is, though, again, that very much exactly locks Russia into a very grim status quo. As Mark hints, are we getting into yet another forever war? This is Doomsday Watch, the Ukraine War, Episode 7, New World Disorder. We often hear about the fog of war and how it is often convenient to people in positions of power, especially to a government such as Russia's that often willfully twists the truth to suit its agenda. Back in episode three, we broadcast perhaps the toughest of all the interviews we've done with AP photographer Yevgeny Malaletka. I'm sure you remember it. 
his account of the horrors of the siege of Mariupol. And imagine how hard it is for Yevgeny to relive these awful events. But he was determined. He wanted to get the story out. So I asked him what his message was for those who still didn't know what was really happening on the front lines in Ukraine. Unfortunately, after one year, of course, it's, uh, the media attention is go by waves, you know, and it's, uh, it's really hard to involve, you know, the world to Ukrainian topic. But uh, the war, unfortunately, is still continuing. And every day our city is under shelling and under attacks. Like, it's happening every day. Yeah. And our photographs, you know, like, I'm, I'm not sure that they will hear it. But it's important to say that they might to look, you know, all the work of uh, photographers and videographers who've been uh, doing so important job, you know, risking their lives to, to document what's happening in Ukraine. And here, in like in Mariupol, what we did in Bucha, in Kharkiv, and Chernihiv, and Sumy, and trying to understand, you know, is it right? like in the 21st century uh, to do the occupation of other country. I think the people who who believe in Russian propaganda they will not believe even what we saw and what we witnessed because they are living in a different planet they are not here they are not feeling this what we feel they didn't lose their friends their cities not being bombed. They didn't lose their homes. They will not get experience uh, what we had. So like, and they will totally not understand us. Facts do matter. And some people are doing incredible work to make sure we know these facts. We spoke with war crimes investigator Tetiana Pachonchik in April. By then, she had helped in the documentation of just short of 80,000 individual war crimes carried out by Russian forces in Ukraine, this number growing daily, each one a violation of the laws of war, waiting to be tried. But perhaps we forget, not all of us are locked in the Western information bubble, or indeed the bubble of international security built during the long peace in the West since World War II. Many countries, they don't understand the seriousness of what is happening before until they also uh, fell victim of this cruelty. Russia uh, did uh, numerous war crimes uh, in Chechnya, then continued in Syria, in Georgia, in Moldova, in many countries. So I think those countries who are uh, close to Russia, they understand very well, like Baltic states, like Poland, which methods work with Russia. But for those countries who are uh, geographically more lucky, they try to uh, do business as usual. They try to neglect to ignore uh, what Russia what Russia did. The, but this has led only to the escalation. So is there a risk of Ukraine fatigue here? And of course, on a global level, there are places where Ukraine has never managed to attract serious attention. There's a public information war going on. According to a University of Cambridge study from 2022, the conflict has delineated a global divide. 
among the 1.2 billion people who inhabit the world's liberal democracies, 87% have a negative view of Russia and three quarters now hold a negative view of China. Yet among the 6.3 billion who live in the world's remaining 136 countries, the opposite is the case with 70% of people feeling positively towards China and two-thirds positive about Russia. Away from the battlefield, Vladimir Putin, for all his blunders in Ukraine, still manages to control parts of the narrative. Carl Miller is a disinformation expert from the think tank Demos. Welcome to the kind of weird and shadowy world of influence operations. And it, it, it is, it's a strange dynamic, Arthur, that we're, we're going to just be looking at here, where there's a kind of reciprocal kind of warring maths, I suppose, is the best way of describing it, which is which is going on. You know, there's this kind of tradecraft of online influence, which constantly changes, develops, evolves. And on, on the other side of things, you've got um, kind of, I guess, like informational defensive researchers like us independently, but then also the tech giants who constantly try and develop their own maths, their own machine learning and heuristics to try and try and spot it. So there's been a kind of an extremely strong focus on Russia, the Russian state, Russian linked organisations doing this kinds of operation, which which has its legacy all the way back in 2016 and the and the presidential election of, of Donald Trump, which was really the moment when the first kind of global kind of like kind of political event, which which I think was kind of affected by and, and targeted by influence operations. Carl, um, the picture of the Ukraine war looks rather different depending on where you sit in the world. What is the information picture in the major kind of BRICS countries at the moment when it comes to the sort of social media interactions about this conflict? Um, You see there are really specific clusters of accounts that all use the same kind of language in common with each other and very different from all the rest of it. And, And when we then looked at all of those clusters... Um, it was astonishingly different from any other campaign that I've I've actually analysed, which which we think is linked to Russia. You know, normally you've got clusters around um, various the various fissures and cracks in Western politics. You know, BLM accounts, all those claiming to be MAGA accounts, those claiming to be, and so on. Here, it was clusters around Hindi using language accounts. Tamil, there was a Tamil cluster. There was a kind of Pakistan. Afghanistan cluster, another one linked to kind of South Africa and Nigeria. This is all about Western hypocrisy, about BRIC solidarity, anti-colonialism. That because we are not seeing the kinds of mimetics and pro-invasion memes which, which exist out there doesn't mean that we're winning. It just means that we're not the targets of these kinds of campaigns. Sergei Lavrov, Foreign Minister of the Russian Federation, welcome to Al Arabiya and Al Hadith. Thank you. If you cannot sleep because of Russia Ukrainian conflict, uh, there are some advices uh, to, to, to calm you down. First, imagine that this is happening in Africa. Imagine this is happening in the Middle East. Imagine Ukraine is Palestine. Imagine Russia is the United States. I saw this with my own eyes when I visited West Africa last year with a Ukrainian civil society delegation. 
In several meetings we had at universities, with politicians and media engagements, the Ukrainians were repeatedly subjected to questions about their country's supposed history of threatening Russia, or being a proxy for Western ambitions, or their culpability in trying to join NATO. My Ukrainian colleagues were able to push back, spelling out some important facts, but Russia's disinformation effort targeting the global south is definitely having an impact. So just what has Russia been up to? In our very first series, we spoke to Nina Jankovic, author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News and the Future of Conflict. Russia has recognized that information is a commodity now. It's cheap to produce and easy to target using these modern tools of social media that we have. By taking societies like the UK or the US that have existing fissures, existing grievances, amplifying those grievances, Russia has recognized that it can increase the polarization and thereby keep us distracted, right, with a lot less attention on it than it might have otherwise. So that's its first goal there. The second one is a little bit perverse. It knows that, uh, and when I say it, I mean Putin. Putin recognizes this very clearly. He knows that when American or British democracy is faltering, when we have protests like we saw here in the United States, where members of the media were getting attacked by police, protesters were getting tear gassed, uh, he can turn, Putin can turn to his, you know, democratic protesters at home and say, ah, is that what you really want? This shining city on a hill, this democracy, is that what you aspire to? One of Russia's most powerful arguments is, of course, the failure of the West, its unreliability. And there are, of course, no greater incidents of failure than the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Some of you may recall my interview in August 2021 with an Afghan hiding in the chaos of Kabul, wondering how he could escape his country of birth from the Taliban onslaught. Now, nearly two years later, I'm able to reveal that person as Pamir Patang, a British-Afghan dual citizen who had worked as a senior government official up until the Taliban takeover. I spoke to Pamir again, this time from the safety of his new life in London, and he talked about his sense of betrayal, which is at the root of the crisis in Western credibility, which the Kremlin seeks to exploit. The people on the ground, they believe that they were betrayed and that they are now forgotten by the international community, taking into account the issues that we have in Ukraine, the war that we have in Ukraine, the support that the Ukrainian people are getting from the international community. It's great, but Afghan people think that they are forgotten, and this probably will continue for decades. And of course, other countries such as Russia, China, and other regional powers, they're using this vacuum you know, to, 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 to get into the market. And the narrative currently on the ground is that they were here for two decades and they left you, therefore you need to be friends with your next door neighbors rather than with someone from across the Atlantic. So that's what the Afghan people are being told. Yes, indeed. Um, one of the things that we've seen happening in Afghanistan is a change in the attitude of the Taliban towards Russia. As, as you know very well, some of the actual Taliban members as Mujahideen fought the Russians. Can you say a bit about the way in which Russia has managed to kind of rebrand itself 
to those people and 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 regain their their friendship and trust. Uh, well, the, the, there were rumors when I was working for the government of Afghanistan that uh, neighboring countries, including Russia, were in contact with the Taliban. I mean, this goes back to the 2015, 16, and 17. And then we saw this that following the Doha deal that was signed between the U.S. and the Taliban, so we more or less like gave uh, a green light to all the regional powers, including uh, the Russians, to engage with the Taliban directly and openly. And uh, as a consequence, I mean, we, we we saw the Moscow conference that had taken place in 2020, in February 2020. Uh, the Russians were the first to call and invite this dialogue of, of peace or, the you know, um, perhaps replace the government. Uh, I believe there was a sort of like a regional consensus between Iran, Pakistan, and Russia, and all the stands, all the former Soviet republics, just to, to do whatever was possible to get rid of the international forces out of Afghanistan. They have managed to do it. Yeah. One of the things that you notice is the degree to which Ukraine is very heavily supported here in Western countries, but actually in the global south, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in, in, in countries in Africa, there is much more support for Russia. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, currently, uh, we have this media war going on, the Russian channels, so they are broadcasting more or less the Russian narrative for the whole war. And we're talking about uh, Afghanistan or these are South Asian countries or Central Asian countries where the, the level of literacy is not as high as uh, in the West for people yeah. to do their own analysis. So they believe what's been uh, aid to them through uh, TV, through radios. Uh, when I talk to my friends and some family members in Afghanistan, their understanding of the whole situation in Ukraine is the opposite of what we see here in the West. It's fascinating. Another aspect I just wonder um, is, it, could it relate also to the economic factors? So obviously, Russia has lost the ability to sell energy to Western markets, or certainly has, has had it reduced. Uh, so is it trying to make up the shortfall by by enhancing those economic relationships with the global south? Oh, definitely. I mean, countries like uh, Russia and China, they have been manipulating these smaller economies and countries, such as even Afghanistan, uh, yeah. with the pressure of supply of goods. Russia is currently supplying big quantity of uh, products of primary needs, such as like wheat flour, you know, cooking oil. Uh, petroleum products to Afghanistan. Two years ago, it wasn't the case. Now, Russia is uh, supplying big volume to Afghanistan. And in addition to this, de facto, uh, Russia recognizes uh, the Taliban. They were the first to hand over the embassy, the Afghan embassy to the Taliban. The Russian embassy on the ground in Afghanistan is in full operation. Uh, the same applies to the Chinese embassy. And the Taliban also depend on, on its neighbors. All these mining sectors of Afghanistan are given to the Chinese companies more or less without any competition. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there is a take, give and take relationship between all these powers in the region with the Taliban. And so finally, I mean, you've mentioned China there, and I want to sort of bring that in just for the final part of this discussion. When you look to the future of a country such as Afghanistan, what do you foresee for that kind of triangle between China, Russia, and, and your own country of birth? 
I believe this relationship would go will go on until the Afghan government, the current government, will understand that now they have to be more competitive and and allow other com- countries and companies from the rest of the uh, world as well to come and compete in the market. Uh, Afghanistan will rely heavily on on China, both for the import of goods, for the export of its uh, dry fruits and some materials to China. Russia uh, is the only country that supplies all the product of primary needs to Afghanistan. So uh, for the people of Afghanistan currently, uh, because the country is more or less in starvation of products, yeah. uh, so they will depend for some time on uh, these two countries that we have mentioned. And of course, the relationship between China and Russia is stronger than before uh, for economic reasons. Uh, military, I'm not an expert on that. I don't know whether there is any uh, exchange of um, uh, military equipment between two sides. There are reports, I read it. Yes and no, I don't know. I cannot confirm. But from the economic point of view, yes, Russia, they are selling their energy products to China. And, and in return, they're getting what they should be getting uh, from the Russian point of view for themselves. And so I don't really see much of an economic deterioration between two sides. Actually, it has enhanced uh, between the two sides. What Pamir outlines there is that it's more than just an information war. Consider the extent to which Afghans now rely on Russia and China economically and diplomatically. In that context, with Western countries continuing to refuse to recognize the new government, Afghans are now dependent on the economic support they receive in the form of basic staples of food and fuel from Russia. It isn't hard to see how the issue of a war in Ukraine seems remote from the priorities of many people living in the global south. It's clear that we have had a decline of democracy globally for basically the last 20 years. Now, I can't say where the story is going to go next, but I can say that the framework that we should use to understand the story that's unfolding before us is a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. And it's a battle where the key players are already quite clear. I mean, you have Russia and China on one side, you have the US, the EU, Japan, a few other players on the other side, and then there's the sort of emerging uh, powers that are waiting in the wings to sort of see what happens, or potentially just hedging their bets and trying to get the best of both worlds. But I think that every global problem that we have can be traced back in one way or another to an authoritarian. And I think that's something that we've just avoided talking about for a very long time. There was this this post-Cold War honeymoon in which because the Soviet Union had been defeated, because there was the stability of the 1990s and so on, a lot of these sort of alliances with odious regimes were swept under the rug as just sort of the price of doing business globally. And I think what's becoming increasingly clear is that 
when we make alliances with uh, authoritarian movements, we're setting ourselves up for something extremely dangerous. And Germany has been burned by this on the you know natural gas front most recently, but it's a lesson we keep on forgetting. Um, you, the more that you get in bed with these authoritarian forces, the more you end up with serious problems down the line. So I suspect that the way that this will be framed in global politics in the years ahead will be not about a sort of cold war of ideology, but a sort of similar divide around political regime type. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in 2022 as we think about the war between Russia and Ukraine. That was Brian Klaas, best-selling author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. We spoke to him for our last series about the New World Disorder. Around the same time, I spoke to Oxford historian Professor Rana Mitter to see if there are some historical precedents here. At the moment, it does look as if the world in some ways is in an unprecedented sense of chaos. But I think that's not right. We are living through a time that we've seen every few generations. And perhaps that suggests that it will likely to be happy, it will be likely to happen again at some time in the future. And that is a moment when an existing hegemonic power finds that its dominance in the world is beginning to be eaten away. So we had that really around the mid-20th century at the end of World War II, which was perhaps the definitive moment that the United States became a global hegemon. At that point, of course, obviously in competition with the other aspirant to that title, the Soviet Union. But that global arrangement was definitely different from what had been the case even 10 years before, where the major European empires, the British and the French in particular, along with the then Japanese empire, which people often tend to forget about, was very big at that point. All of those were players in the world. And in 1945, the Japanese empire was clearly off the table and the French and the British were on their way down. Or even 30 years before that, think about the aftermath of World War I, a time when a whole variety of European powers, hegemonic powers, also found themselves because, again, of a, a titanic war. So the question at the moment is really, are we seeing a world in which the slow decline of some aspects of American power, I think there's no doubt that American projection of its power is less than it was 30 years ago in the 1990s. Does that necessarily mean that any one power is coming up on the outside to take its place? Well, I would say no. One of the most dangerous aspects of the current volatile order is that although it provides opportunities for a whole variety of international actors, the danger is that an overarching structure, the global order, which in some form has essentially existed since 1945, looks more and more fragile. The major actors who have sat as hegemons in that order are beginning to become more opportunistic, are beginning to become more willing to uh, operate those parts of the order that suit them and leave aside those which they find inconvenient. And that has been true for the United States. It's been true for China. It's certainly been true for Russia. And in many cases, it is encouraging other actors who have generally felt that finding their way one way or another into some part of that overarching order may no longer be worthwhile. So while I think there's still more than enough of the framework of that global order to be recognisable and to be preservable. There is no doubt that elements of it are being corroded and that 
decisions by politicians, decisions by uh, voting publics and civil societies in democracies, and decisions in authoritarian states are combining to create a situation that potentially could be a bit like what termites do to a house. It all looks absolutely fine until some very sudden moment when, in a great crash of timbers and sawdust, the whole thing collapses. You could argue that the structure has already fallen. As we record this, the war has spread beyond Ukraine's borders. A military unit apparently made up of Russians opposed to the current regime have mounted an operation inside Russia, around the city of Belgorod. This is very clearly intended to divert Russian military resources away from the south and east of the country, where Ukraine is likely to try to push its counter-offensive. But it's a vivid illustration of the risks of blowback in a disordered world. More than ever before, the Kremlin needs to divert attention away from the mess that is unfolding now in its own country. So they press forward with an alternative campaign, their information war. And this alternative narrative remains powerfully persuasive. Putin has major world leaders on speed dial. Take the energy crisis. Europe has largely weaned itself off Russia's energy. But that country is now locked into an energy symbiosis with China. So is China willing to finance Putin's forever war? Hi, I'm Natasha Kurt, Dr. Natasha Kurt in the Department of War Studies at King's College London for China. This is a proxy war waged by the West against Russia. That's the lens through which China sees the war. And it sees Russia responding to NATO enlargement. So I think we need to remember that China sees the war in a very different way to the way that, that we would see it. You know, Although, obviously, it does also have qualms about the fact that, that Ukraine is a sovereign nation, you know, it's a kind of dilemma, really, for China, because you know, at the same time, it's a huge part of Chinese foreign policy to resist what they call hegemonism, Western, but mainly US dominance of the world order. And um, I don't think that they're likely to radically change their orientation. I think, you know, there's general consensus amongst those who, who study this relationship. Um, I mean, you know, it's been very beneficial to China for, you know, a couple of decades at least now. And this you know, relationship has been developing for really quite a long time now. Um, and that process had already really begun in the late 80s under Gorbachev. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union, soon became clear that Russia needed economic relations in order to continue with its armaments industry. So China became an important market for Russian weapons. And really, I would say that trajectory in that economic relationship has stayed fairly similar throughout um, but trade has never really diversified in any way. And I think that has set up a certain dependency of Russia in its relations with China. I'm one of those that looks at Russia, uh, and I guess I'll associate myself with Senator Barrasso's comments that uh, that uh, he was quoting, I think, uh, Senator McCain saying that Russia is a mafia-run gas station parading as a country. If this is a true lifeline for Putin, 
Does Russia end up becoming an economic colony of China? I think one of the issues in the 1990s that was highlighted by some of the regional governors in the Russian Far East was the concern that Russia would become a kind of raw materials appendage of China. And I think that has continued to sort of accelerate over the years. You know, China hasn't really invested in Russia, shown very little interest in investment. And unfortunately, due to the problem in relations with Japan and Japan's territorial claims on, on Russia, it been, hasn't been possible to diversify relations, if you like. Um, and China um, has been making moves to cozy up to the Central Asian states. I mean, obviously, it's had a relationship, um, economic relationship with a number of those Central Asian states for some years now. But it's always trodden quite carefully to make sure it doesn't step on Russia's toes, in a way, acknowledging that Central Asia is a sphere of Russian influence, if you like. But that has really been changing because um, a week or so ago, China held um, meetings in Beijing with all five Central Asian states, but without Russia's participation. And I think that's a very significant move. Um, but I think that Russia is still incredibly useful to China, for example, at the UN, um, in terms of building alliances with various you know, countries of the global south and those countries that don't necessarily wholeheartedly support Russia's invasion. But at the same time, they've had you know, a number of doubts about the US role in the world, for example. And so, I mean, obviously, China could at some point decide to stop buying the cheap Russian oil. But for now, it kind of makes sense for China to continue buying that oil. And by the way, India also buys that cheap oil. So it's not as if China's the only one. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. We all know about Ukrainian resilience, but they remain heavily reliant on Western support. As we learnt in episode four on the West response, it's more finely balanced than most of us imagine. At the recent G7 meeting, President Joe Biden reluctantly agreed to let some European countries give the Ukrainians their mothballed F-16s. That's an advanced, if not exactly state-of-the-art, US-made fighter jet. But it's important to be clear about what's happening here. Under the Biden presidency, there has been huge US support of Ukraine. But with elections coming up next year and Republicans increasingly reluctant to support Ukraine, Biden is also having to be careful about how far he pushes his own support. The fear of escalation or the nightmare scenario of a direct conflict between the US and Russia is never far from the president's calculations. 
Stephen Pfeiffer, a former American ambassador to Ukraine, had this warning. I do think that the Russians sought to influence the American election election in 2016, if for no other reason than to show chaos. But, you know, perhaps I think that they, if they had the choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, um, my guess is that the vote in Moscow would have overwhelmingly gone for uh, Donald Trump. So I, I do think the Russians, through various techniques, particularly impact on social media, did try to influence the election. Now, whether that was the turning point in the election, I, I don't think so. But I, I actually, though, wonder if Putin was playing the longer game and actually that Putin was hoping for Trump's re-election in 2020. And, uh, I mean, you know, look at uh, John Bolton, who was uh, Trump's national security advisor. And I think Bolton said that he believes that had Trump been re-elected, uh, Trump would have pulled the United States out of NATO. You know, if you're sitting in Moscow, I mean, that's the grand prize. The likelihood is that the West will continue to back Ukraine, but there are some reasons for concern. I mean, this has caused economic tensions, economic stress in Europe. What you've seen emerge in the Republican Party is this MAGA wing, and I think it's still a minority view in the Republicans in Congress that is questioning support for Ukraine. It's questioning the expense. Uh, that makes me a bit nervous. If Stephen's warnings come true, America might not be such a reliable ally to the Ukrainians in years to come. So is the China-Russia relationship now the key engine of the new world disorder? First of all, I don't see it as an alliance. I mean, essentially, I think it's quite useful for Russia and China if we think of it as an alliance, because that kind of makes it seem stronger than it than it necessarily is. Um, but it's more than a marriage of convenience as well. They do come together as well with the Central Asian countries through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to resist what they call the three evils of separatism, fundamentalism and terrorism. Um, but also via the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, China projects these values, which they have now encapsulated in their global civilizational initiative, which is a kind of pushing back against um, universalist ideas which kind of essentially say you have to sign up to Western ideas of human rights and so on. You know, they're very much trying to present China as a country that kind of allows, you know, this diversity of opinion doesn't try and fit everybody into this kind of template. And in terms of the UN, I mean, I certainly think that we have underestimated the degree to which there is anti-Western sentiment around the world. You know, I think where we need to look really is, for example, in Africa, where Russia with the Wagner Group and then China with its economic projects and then, you know, the kind of UN peacekeeping missions where they're kind of bumping up against each other. And, you know, that's actually quite dangerous situation, you know, and the extent to which there is a pushback, which, you know, China and well, China probably more so than Russia, really. I mean, Russia tend, Russia's rhetoric tends to be quite negative, destructive, whereas China's rhetoric at the UN, it's very much a developmental kind of narrative. You know, it's very much about China assisting these countries without ties, without strings attached. Um, you know, so so China presents itself very much as, you know, a country that um, also that, you know, is paying into the UN purse on peacekeeping, but also contributing in harm's way, which to be frank, France, US, UK are not really doing very, very few 
peacekeepers. So China can claim quite a measure of legitimacy and authority, you know, because they provide very large numbers of peacekeepers. And I think that's something to keep an eye on because China will at some point say, well, you know, given what we're doing in the area of peacekeeping, we should be allocated uh, spaces within the UN peacekeeping department as well. Obviously, this, you know, we can't really get around the problem of the fact that Russia has a veto in the Security Council. But I mean, in some ways, this challenge to the UN, it's kind of forced the UN to kind of actually start using the General Assembly a lot more and to actually speak to these countries, which before were perhaps not really seen as so important, you know, so some of those kind of middle powers and so on, you know, so in some ways that could actually be a way of kind of revitalizing the UN. We ended our last episode by asking who will prevail, democracy or autocracy? Charles Dunst wrote the book on it, entitled Defeating the Dictators, after spending time in parts of the world where the democratic principle is weakened or non-existent. We spoke earlier in the year. When I lived in Hungary, there's this irony in the West of we think about autocracy as every day is drudgery and evil, where the irony is in many of these countries, life is quite boring. You just don't talk about certain things or your media system slowly closes off, which is why I think about if we're talking about the more, quote unquote, successful autocracies today, the rich ones that exert global influence, the Gulf states, Singapore, to some extent, China, to some extent, at least regionally, Vietnam. These are all countries that provide well enough for their people that there is no meaningful democratic opposition calling for a regime change. I mean, there's a very small subset of people in in China, but there is no real democratic impulse, even among the intelligentsia uh, in Riyadh or in Beijing or in Abu Dhabi. There is more so an acceptance of, well, the government has worked for me. My family has gotten richer. My life, my life is pretty good. Let me work with this government to tackle the challenges of the future. Whereas, obviously, that is not the case in a less functional autocracy like Iran, where there is a, a push to kind of change the government because the system doesn't work. So I think making sure that the system is working for enough people and that you have enough support, whether that's because of economic issues or nationalism, is very key to the kind of new autocratic playbook. Is is an aspect of this the way that we, we and I say we, I mean, I'm talking about often countries and, and populations living in liberal democracy, we valorize dictators. We describe them as strategic geniuses. I mean, until Putin's tragic error of invading Ukraine, he was the smartest guy in any room as, as in, in the way he was described. And, you know, a, a country that I, I know quite well, Saudi Arabia, uh, I'm always amazed the way that MBS is described as this genius. Now, every initiative he's taken has failed. Is this part of the issue that somehow culturally we've created this idea that autocrats are are the smart guys. Yes, because I think that's reflective of particularly the United States, United Kingdom, and parts of Europe, where there's such bureaucracy, there's such politics that slows down deliverance of basic services or of basic action. We'll put it this way. The United States, we can't do a free trade deal right now because Congress doesn't want to do it and because their people don't want to do it. Whereas if you look at an MBS or you look at a Xi Jinping and they say, great, let's do an FTA right now. 
or if you look at the UAE, the UAE signed an FTA with India in October. Uh, they can do things much faster because there are no checks on their power. But of course, that's that's the problem. A strong man like Putin will invade Ukraine or that MBS will order the assassination of a green card holding journalist. It's the same it's the same problem. When there are no checks in your power, sure, you can make very smart decisions, but you can also make very bad ones. And I think that's a, the clear demonstration of the problem with an autocrat where you're basically betting on this person being extremely even keeled and extremely smart and extremely strategic, which probably is only the case with maybe Lee Kuan Yew, probably the uh, the former the former Sultan of Oman, Sultan Qaboos. I mean, there are these very, very few examples of autocrats who have been real strategic thinkers that have managed the relationship between the West and the global South and have provided for their people without making drastic errors. But more often than not, mistakes are going to happen. We've talked a bit about the nature of dictatorship. And, and in a way, where you've just arrived seems to me where we should go next, which is, after all, your book is about defeating dictators. Um, before we go into Ukraine, you know, how would you characterize the sort of the big picture answer, you know, what is your prescription for de defeating dictators? Sure. The, the big picture prescription is better governance at home for two reasons. One, if you do not govern effectively at home by making people, by giving people stronger economic opportunity, strong social safety nets, strong healthcare systems, eventually they're going to revolt against you and vote for someone like an Orban or like a Trump. And if institutions are fragile, that could very much see the end of democracy at home. So that's one problem. And problem two is if the United Kingdom, the United States, Japan, South Korea, these world-leading democracies are not seen as delivering for their own people at home, you can hardly convince people in kind of countries that are either on the fringes of democracy and autocracy or even ones that are fully autocratic but thinking with the intelligentsia thinking down the line. If we don't deliver, we can hardly convince them that our system is a model. Whereas if you travel to, I was recently in Egypt, and you talk to Egyptians, there's not much of a yearning to become like the United States or the United Kingdom anymore, especially when you leave Cairo. It's much more about, well, I worked in the UAE. Let's become the UAE. Let's get a really, really smart, strong man, and he'll just fix everything, which is not going to happen in Egypt. But you get, you get the same sentiment in Vietnam. It is not let's become like the United States or the United Kingdom. It's let's become like China. Let's do what China did. Let's do what Singapore did and do it better. And that is increasingly this prevailing sentiment around the developing world. If you cannot convince them that democracy is a model by providing for democracy at home, you can hardly expect the spread of democracy more, more globally. Yeah. Let's talk about Ukraine. I mean, I'm unashamedly on team democracy. So <laughs> that watching Ukraine uh, not just stand up to the Russian army, but actually turn them around to regain territory uh, it's it's inspirational. Is Ukraine standing its ground because it's a democracy? Is Ukraine having success because it's a democracy? And is that going to teach the world one of the ways in which we defeat dictators? Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I wonder. I wonder if Ukraine would have been as successful under a previous previous prime minister or a previous president who wasn't who wasn't liked who wasn't liked because they were viewed as corrupt or whatnot. Certainly, I think it helps that Zelensky came to power through democratic means, that despite corruption still being a problem, he personally is viewed as a fairly clean leader, as someone who is fairly focused on delivering for his people, even, even before the war. I think that has certainly helped to build national, uh, national coherence 
a kind of a national sentiment of we are all going to stand up to Russia together. There don't seem to be many fragments among the Ukrainian people, I think in part because he came to power through democratic means and is running a fairly, was running a fairly clean government. Whereas I think about, I think about it all the time where if someone was to bomb Pearl Harbor today, would the U.S. public be united enough to have a draft to send people to go fight a war? I don't think so. I don't think there is an, and you could say the same thing about the U.K. You could say the same thing about Germany. I think the, the exceptions of the democracies here are Taiwan because there's this visceral threat next door. I think Israel to some extent for the same reason, but the kind of quote unquote normal democracies that live fairly far from their visible threats I don't think have that same national solidity that Ukraine has. And I think part of that is the uniqueness of history. But the fact that people felt like they could unite around Zelensky as a democratic and clean leader has certainly helped. And I think it could serve as a bit of a demonstration for democratic leaders elsewhere to basically say, well, everyone might not have voted for me. Maybe only 53, 54 percent of the population voted for me. But how do I make myself look like and how do I stand up as the person around whom the whole country can rally in the time of war. At the start of this episode, we heard how Dmitry Peskov was warning Putin's closest acolytes of the prospect of Russia being in a forever war against Ukraine. So we better prepare too. John Sweeney has been tracking Vladimir Putin's crimes for nigh on a quarter of a century. So Peskov, I've met him, um, and he's kind of streetwise, and yet also um, he's the guy who would sell you a bad second-hand car. So the forever war. Now, I think that they're afraid, and they are making a a kind of, it to their mind, a rational decision, bearing in mind there are centuries of slavery, which is kind of baked inside the Russian psyche. So this is the thing we're wrestling with. Okay, I get that, I understand that. However, it doesn't give Putin an eternal lease on the Russian soul. To see where this story, or at least this first draft of history, ends, join us next time for our final episode, The World at War. If the Ukrainians humiliate his army, his killing machine, then Vladimir Putin is in trouble and he'll leave the Kremlin in a box. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartley. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.